came up with this weird you know, racial uh, categorization of humanity. And they imagined that linguistic categories tie into racial categories. So for them, the Jews who supposedly originally came from Palestine, where Semitic languages are spoken, and spoke supposedly Hebrew, which at that time was just an ancient language and nobody spoke it, except you know, scholarly, very few scholarly people, uh, that these people were somehow racially tied into their language category, the Semitic language. So that was the whole basis of uh, European racism against Jews, which was not sensible because the vast majority of European Jews are just as European as any other European. Their origins are absolutely white European. They, they had no more ancestors from Palestine than any of us did, for the most part. Most, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews are European Jews, not Palestinian Jews, not Middle Eastern Jews. But, of course, they maintained a sacred language that was Semitic, and that's Hebrew, uh, just as so many of us. I'm in the United States. I use Arabic as a sacred language when I read Quran. Um, does that make me a Semite? I don't know. In any case, the racists said that Jews are Semites and they have long hooked noses and that ties in with their having been Semitic. Complete nonsense. Racist BS. Uh, but somehow that stuck. The anti-Jewish prejudices remained uh, connected with this notion that Jews are Semites, which is not true. And we were then given this notion that anti-Jewish prejudice is a very, very bad thing. And let's call it anti-Semitism, even though that makes no sense whatsoever. Let's stick with what the racists erroneously believed in the 19th century. So it's, it's foolish. Uh, and Ibrahim Sudi makes this point that he's the one who's the Semite. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he's not Semitic in any way, shape, or form. Sure, he speaks Hebrew, and that is historically a Semitic language. So he's as Semitic as Kevin Barrett is, because both of us speak a Semitic language. But both of us are as white as whatever. You know, most of our ancestors came from Europe. We have pale skin and light hair uh, and light eyes. We're, you know, genetically, we're Europeans. Wasn't wasn't Netanyahu born in the United States? Yeah, he was he was actually a furniture salesman, I think, in Pennsylvania for a while. Uh, and he speaks perfect English, which is one reason he gets away with murder, literally and figuratively. He's, he's a very slick uh, con man, uh, just a psychopathic liar, one of the most unpleasant individuals ever to hold high office in any country. And, yeah, he's, he's, he's certainly not Semitic, but he's certainly going to try to convince you that anybody searching for the truth about anything remotely related to uh, Zionism uh, is, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic. Now, I think Kevin Barrett makes a good point. We can understand some things about the world in which we live by looking at its language and particularly these anomalies, these phrases like conspiracy theorist, which don't seem to make sense etymologically. The U.S. government has, after all, put forward a theory of a conspiracy, Yet, you're not a conspiracy theorist if you promulgate that theory, whereas other ones you are. In the same way, a Holocaust denier, you might think, would be somebody who said, no, there wasn't a Holocaust, it didn't happen. Whereas the term is used for anybody who questions details of the official account. So you might think a Holocaust questioner, Holocaust disputer, would make more etymological sense. But no... The term for anybody who disputes details, who questions the account, is a denier. So that's interesting if that story needs to be protected by these important uh, taboos. Now, I'm not just addressing established usage patterns of words. There are legal ramifications. 
So free speech is fine and we all want that. But in many countries in Europe, if you question the established wisdom about the Holocaust, then you can go to jail for that. Some people are sitting in prison for years, not because they committed any acts of violence, but because they expressed their opinions. Church of England minister earlier this year, Reverend Stephen Sizer, linked from his Facebook account to a Wikispooks page, 9-11 Israel did it, with the remark, this raises so many questions. Now, that was deemed unacceptable for a man of the cloth. He was basically told, if you ever do this again, we're going to kick you out of the church. Now, if you want to see the page, by the way, you can go to Google and type Israel did it. Currently that works. If it slips down the ratings, you could type Wiki Spooks, Israel did it, W-I-K-I-S-P-O-O-K-S. Ah, if that doesn't work, then they're probably de-indexed the whole website. So you're going to have to go there directly at wikispooks.com. It's a simplistic analysis. These events are not organized by nations. They're not even organized by individual intelligence agencies. It's cliques. It's international groups. It's the deep state, I think. So it's a simplistic analysis. But he wasn't saying that he believed it was true. He was just drawing people's attention to that information. So if there's information out there which is of such import, then... Who is trying to keep it secret? Why are they trying to keep it secret? Are there senior members of the Church of England who feel very strongly about this on a personal basis? Or did perhaps somebody tap somebody on a shoulder and say, I think you'd better come down hard on Mr. Stephen Sizer. He's a loose reverend. If you're at the top of a power hierarchy, you are going to attract the attention of certain people who might want to exercise power through you. Now, what does it tell us about European society? That Church of England hierarchs, together with the backing of the commercially controlled media, as one, were comfortable to tell Stephen Sizer, what you've done is wrong, you're going to lose your job if you even attempt to link Israel to 9-11. Whereas... Commercially controlled media, other establishment politicians were very happy about promulgating the story without providing evidence alleging that 9-11 was the work of fanatical extremist Muslims. Our next piece is The Rise of Islamophobia in Europe. At Socialism 2015, Nicole Colson is speaking on the 2nd of July this year. I want to begin with a quote, um, quote, Islamist extremists have declared war on us and they are attacking our people at home and overseas. They are attacking our way of life and what we stand for. And so we have to stand united with those that share our values. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that this was George W. Bush speaking about the existential threat of Islamic terrorism. But actually, it was Prime Minister, British Prime Minister David Cameron speaking just this week um, on the BBC in the wake of the recent attack on a Tunisian.
Indonesian resort in which at least 38 people were killed. Um, Karen's explanation that terrorists are attacking our way of life and what we stand for is a slightly, but only barely slightly, more eloquent version of George W. Bush's statement that 9-11 occurred because fundamentalist terrorists hate us for our freedom. It's no less reductive, however, and if there's any doubt about what he was really getting at, another quote of Cameron's should clarify. Speaking at a security conference in Slovakia on how to tackle radicalization and terrorism, Cameron made it clear that the entire Muslim community is culpable for terrorism. Quote, we've always had angry young men and women buying into supposedly revolutionary causes. I think part of the reason it's so potent is that it has been given this credence. So if you're a troubled boy who is angry at the world or a girl looking for an identity, for something to believe in, and there's something that is quietly condoned online or perhaps even in parts of your local community, then it's less of a leap to go from a British teenager to an Islamic State fighter or an Islamic State wife than it would be for someone who hasn't been exposed to these things. In making these statements, Cameron was regurgitating the dominant narrative about the causes of terrorism that's developed among Western political leaders, pundits, and the media since 9-11. While Cameron and other mainstream political leaders take pains to officially denounce prejudice and hate crimes against Muslims, their rhetoric and policies have promoted since 9-11 and before a demonization and institutional policies directed against Europe's Muslims. This has been seized on by the far right, but also tacitly endorsed um, by some on the left as well. Although the anti-Muslim prejudice and discrimination in Europe did not begin with 9-11, following the 9-11 attacks, the desire to seek a convenient answer to that essential question, why do they hate us, took on a renewed importance for politicians seeking to use the supposed fight against terrorism as cover for an expanded and robust imperial project. The easy answer was supplied by people like Orientalist Bernard Lewis, who earlier in 1990 had posited that there was a kind of fundamental defect in the Muslim mind that could give rise to, quote, an explosive mixture of rage and hatred which impels even the government of an ancient and civilized country, even the spokesman of a great and ethical religion, to espouse kidnapping and assassination and to try to find in the life of their prophet approval and indeed precedent for such actions. Or, as Samuel Huntington would argue in 1993, the dominating source of conflict in a post-Cold War world would be cultural, a clash of civilizations, essentially between the rational West and the irrational Muslim world. And this has led to the dominant view of Islam today in the West, which caricatures Islam as a monolithic religion, one that is uniquely oppressive to women, uniquely violent, uniquely illogical. Um, now, following on, if Islam as a religion is all of these things, then it follows that its adherents are likewise. And this stereotype serves a purpose for those that rule society. Today, in a climate of rapidly expanding diversity in Europe, Muslims in particular are portrayed as wanting to separate themselves off from the rest of society, refusing to assimilate, as though the goal of society should be to be as Borg-like as possible. <laughs> Government policies further target Muslims for structural discrimination and significant sections of Muslim minorities across Europe um, as a result face higher levels of unemployment, 
poverty and curtailing of political and civil rights, all of which aggravate discrimination. And add to this that Muslim immigrants watch as Western governments bomb, invade, and otherwise target their countries of origin for economic and political repression. These factors in various forms help spur people towards the kinds of rad radicalization that produce terrorism, but these factors are rarely spoken of as an explanation. Um, as Liz Fiquette writes, a real grappling with the causes of radicalization would, quote, mean adopting economic and political solutions that do not conflate domestic, terror domestic problems with the war on terror. It would be to recognize that the alienation of second and third generation immigrant youth was widespread long before the rise of radical Islamic movements like Al-Qaeda. A rational approach would address the socioeconomic exclusion of working class Muslim communities from mainstream society, grant basic citizen right, citizenship rights so long withheld in many European states, especially from the youth. A rational approach would speak to young people's grievances over policing by commissioning inquiries into the high number of deaths in police custody of North African people, and as in France, so in Belgium. But because governments appear to have lost all ability to appraise their fears rationally, the fear takes on the form of paranoia in which any sign of cultural difference, wearing the hijab, for example, is interpreted as a sort of aggression, quote. Those are the words of uh, French President Chirac and a symbol of subversive anti-Western sen sentiment. Now, it's worth noting that Islamophobia has been whipped up at various points in various places in Europe, even well before September 11th. The mid-1990s, for example, saw an escalation of anti-immigrant policies in Europe, particularly by the right, that in various places targeted Muslim communities in particular. In France, for example, the 1990s saw a wave of repression aimed at poor Muslim, largely immigrant communities in the Paris suburbs. But since 9-11, and then again following incidents that include the murders of far right-wing Dutch politician Pim Fortuyn and right-wing Dutch filmmaker Theo Van Gogh in 2002 and 2004, with the July 7, 2005 London bombings that killed 52 people, with the bomb attack on the offices of the French magazine Charlie Hebdo in 2011, in 2013, with the killing of British soldier Lee Rigby in London, and of course, most recently, with the attacks on the staff of Charlie Hebdo in Paris on January 7th of this year, followed by the attack on a kosher deli two days later. In the aftermath of each of, the, the, each of these incidents has been used to escalate state repression targeted at Muslim communities, including increased state surveillance and expansion of government power and a massive expansion of laws that increase penalties for actual acts of terrorism, but also new laws that target thought crimes and crimes of association. Tensions also have been exacerbated by the aftermath of the economic crash of 2007 and the rise of populist national, nationalist politicians. Targets become not only immigrants, but native-born who are Muslim, who again are posited as being the enemy within. Now obviously a complete rundown of even just the most recent examples of discrimination, hate crimes, racist profiling, etc. would be 
too much to detail for the entire continent. But I do want to go through several different categories of such attacks, which are generally agreed on as some of the defining features of institutional Islamophobia. And I want to discuss examples to give an overview of the kind of climate of institutional repression and discrimination that Muslims now face. First, there are physical or verbal attacks on property, places of worship, and people, especially those who display visible signs of their religious identity, like women who wear the hijab. Um, in terms of actual assaults on people, pro uh, property, and places of worship, you know, again, these would be far too numerous to, to go over. It's worth pointing out, however, that in the wake of the January killings at, at Charlie Hebdo and the Delhi in Paris, there were dozens of attacks on, on mosques and individual Muslims throughout France and in other countries as well. By January 14th, France's National Observatory Against Islamophobia had recorded at least 60 separate incidents, which included mosques being targeted with firebombs, gunfire, pig heads, and grenades. In addition, on January 17th, a Moroccan man was stabbed to death and his wife was injured when a neighbor broke into their home shouting, I am your God, I am your Islam. In Great Britain, uh, the watchdog Tell Mama reported that between 2001 and 2013, between 40 and 60% of mosques and Islamic centers in the country, some 700, had been targeted with Islamophobic attacks, including racist graffiti and a nail bomb that was left in a mosque, uh, in, a mosque in the West Midlands. The person who planted the bomb also stabbed a Muslim pensioner uh, named Mohammed Salim to death as he was returning home from his prayers. In contrast to the murder of the British soldier Lee Rigby, however, very little attention was paid to Salim's murder by politicians or in the press. Um, you know, and unfortunately I could go on with these examples, but, but I'll stop. Um, another feature of Islamophobia has been policies or legislation that indirectly target or disproportionately affect Muslims and unduly res restrict their freedom of religion, such as bans on uh, wearing visible religious cultural symbols, laws against facial concealment, and bans on building mosques um, with minarets. Uh, I'll, I'll talk specifically about the restrictions on the hijab and the ban on the full, full face veil in France later on um, in the context of, of some of the political debates in, in France. But just to say that France is by no means alone in its restrictions on religious expression. Um, Belgium also bans the full face veil. Uh, there are local bans on the full face veil in cities in Spain and Italy and in Germany. Several states uh, ban teachers from wearing the hijab job as well. Um, and generally speaking, such bans are, are currently in the process of expanding. Beyond the veil, in 2009, in a national referendum pr promoted by the far right, Swiss voters approved a ban on the construction of minarets, the prayer towers of mosques. The New York Times described, quote, campaign posters depicted a Swiss flag sprouting black missile-shaped minarets alongside a woman shrouded in a niqab, the, the full face veil, um, that shows only the eyes, starkly illustrated the, it starkly, starkly illustrated the determination of the right to play on deep-rooted fears that Muslim immigration would lead to an erosion of Swiss values. In Italy, in the northern region of Lombardy, an anti-mosque law has now been passed under which anyone seeking to build a new place of worship 
for a religion not officially recognized by the state would be subject to an extensive list of special restrictions ranging from the size of associated parking facilities to the outward appearance of the buildings, as well as having to clear a string of new bureaucratic hurdles. Basically, it's the equivalent of like what Republicans are trying to do to abortion clinics in the United States. Um, so not surprisingly, people might guess, Islam is currently the only major religion not recognized by the Italian state. Um, nor do such restrictions stop at bans on overt religious symbols. Recently in Spain, ruling conservatives facing re-election in the town of Tarragona have proposed a law to limit the number of kebab shops, internet cafes, and dollar stores in the town center, keeping them 500 yards apart to, quote, protect traditional Spanish businesses and prevent what they call ghettos. Um, Joaquim Enric Garola, the town councillor for citizen security in the suburb, said in recent years more Muslims have arrived. Now, for example, let's say a bunch of Muslim kids are milling around after school. It's better if we disperse them because they could form a ghetto. I didn't realize that was how ghettos were formed. Um, what we're doing is in their interest and in ours. And by the way, the unemployment rate in Tarragona is more than 30%. In Britain recently, Muslim students in four primary schools in London were told that they would not be allowed to fast during Ramadan, citing the students' welfare as the motivating factor behind the decision. Um, after an outcry, students were told they could fast, but only if they received special permission first, if their parents came and met with the principal first. Um, another feature, there is also discrimination in education, employment, housing, etc. Across Europe, Muslims are more likely to be unemployed or underemployed and more likely to be poor than the population at large. They are more likely to live in substandard housing. In a recent article in the International Socialism Journal, Hassan Mohammedali noted the majority of Europe's Muslims lack or are denied meaningful political and economic influence and power at a national level. They are among the most deprived members of the working class, suffering discrimination, structural unemployment, and the effects of poverty. A 2014 report based on, off, on Office for National Statistics data found that Muslims are facing the worst job discrimination of any minority group in Britain and have the lowest chance of being in work or in a managerial role. Researchers found that Muslim men were up to 76% less likely to have a job of any kind compared to white male British Christians of the same age with the same qualifications. And Muslim women were up to 65% less likely to be employed than white Christian counterparts. Likewise, notes Mahamdali, nearly half of the entire Muslim population live in the 10 most deprived local authority districts. Some 5% of Muslims are in hostels or temporary shelters for the homeless. Um, Muslims are much more likely to live in social housing than the general population and less likely to own their own home. In France, the heavily immigrant and Muslim banlieues, the poor suburbs of the north, to the north of Paris, likewise suffer under heavy unemployment and substandard housing. In 2005, unemployment in the banlieues was 20%, while the national average was 10%, and in some neighborhoods it was above 40%. According to the BBC, the unemployment rate for university graduates of French origin is 5%, compared to an unemployment rate of 26.5% for university graduates of North African origin. As author Andrew Hussey wrote last year, describing a popular re rebellion of young people in one of the banlieues in 2007, 
Quote, the Gare du Nord at the heart of this district is frontier territory. It is the dividing line between the wretched conditions of the banlieues, the suburbs outside the city, and the relative affluence of central Paris. Paris is both near and distant. It is a few short steps away, but in terms of jobs, housing, making a life, for these young people, it is as inaccessible and far away as America. For all their modernity, these urban spaces are designed almost like vast prison camps. The Banlu is the most literal representation of otherness, the otherness of exclusion of the repressed, of the fearful and despised, all kept physically and culturally away from the mainstream of French civilization." Unquote. Another aspect, one of the most pernicious aspects, is the ethnic and religious profiling and police abuse of Muslims, including various provisions of counterterrorism policing. Um, in fact, police harassment of Muslim populations and other authorities is a, a, a common feature across um, by, sorry, police, police and other authority harassment of Muslim populations is a common feature across Europe. In recent years in France, security measures have been tightened in the suburbs, effectively militarizing French housing states, and police are rarely held responsible for, um, for incidents in which they brutalize people. Um, just this March, in fact, two French police officers were cleared from a charge of failing to render aid in the deaths of two teenagers who were electrocuted after police chased them into a power plant following a soccer match in 2005. The boys' deaths had sparked several weeks of rebellion, rioting, uh, um, of course, in media terms, in the, in the Banlieues, which were suppressed brutally by um, then-President uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, who described those riotings as gangrene and rabble. Not only in the Banlieues, but elsewhere in France, police routinely, routinely carry out what's known as identity controls, which is similar to stop and frisk here in the United States. Unannounced demands to see people's identity papers that largely target non-whites and especially young people, including children as young as 13. Despite Muslims making up somewhere between 75 and 9% of the French population, and we don't know for sure, because the French government doesn't actually keep statistics, um, figures suggest that some 70% of France's prison population is Muslim, and that number might actually be higher. The, um, the figure is even higher in Parisian prisons. Despite Muslims making up about 4.5% of the British population, according to Muhammad Ali, Muslims are over 13% of the prison population, the majority of whom are black or South Asian. And regarding counterterrorism measures, as in the U.S., across Europe since 9-11, there's been a wholesale expansion of the powers of police and various security agencies to su surveil Muslims, including at places of worship, to arrest, detain, deport, and even in some cases to strip long-standing citizens of their citizen citizenship on the flimsiest of evidence, and in some cases no public evidence is required at all. Um, in France, the nebulously defined charge of association with wrongdoers in relation to a terrorist enterprise has been used to arrest large numbers of people on the basis of minimal evidence, some of which may actually be provided by foreign intelligence services abroad um, who torture it out of people. And following the Charlie Hebdo attack in January, there was, ironically but all too predictably, a state crackdown on speech 
even as the supposed Muslim intolerance for free speech was hammered on in the media. Um, So one 16-year-old high school student was taken into police custody and indicted for defending terrorism after he posted a widely circulated cartoon on Facebook quote, representing a person holding the magazine Charlie Hebdo being hit by bullets and accompanied by an ironic comment. So was it in poor taste? Certainly. Was it a prosecutable offense? Under French law, yes. Um, And in the week after the Hebdo attack, according to Amnesty International, at least 69 arrests were made on the charge of defending terrorism, including drunk people and children making dumb or ignorant statements. In the UK, expansions of laws like the Prevention of Terrorism Act and the Terrorism Act of 2006 have made it a crime to encourage terrorism by the, quote, glorification of terrorism. According to civil rights lawyer Gareth Pierce, there now lies ahead the, quote, bleak prospect of imprisonment for thousands of young people, all Muslim, who have accessed the internet prompted by an interest shared with millions of their contemporaries around the world, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, in the workings of political or radical Islam. The, target of state sur- the targets of state surveillance, by the way, are often young people in Britain um, who have committed no legal offense. Since 2008, the UK has operated a program known as Channel, part of the government's Preventing Violent Extremism program, designed to identify those at risk of becoming radicalized and sort of re-educating them under the watchful eye of the state. Author Arun Kanani notes that between 2007 and 2010, Uh, 1,120 individuals were identified by the Channel Project as potentially traveling on a radicalization pathway. Of these, 290 were under age 16 and 55 were under 12. Over 90% were Muslim. One of those was 17-year-old student Jamil Scott, a member of the British Socialist Workers' Party. It was after he participated in a protest against an Israeli ambassador that the state suddenly deemed him vulnerable to Islamist or far-left radicalization. (laughs) Other factors uh, supposedly putting him at risk were the fact that he was a teenager, had a Muslim father, though he himself did not identify as Muslim, and that he had joined a left-wing political party. For two years, Jamil, his parents, his aunt, and his school were routinely interrogated about his political trajectory and home life, and he was asked questions about who the adults were who were radicalizing him. What were their names? Um, On one occasion, officers telephoned his mother and told her it would be good to move the family to a different neighborhood and that Britain's counterterrorism unit could have the local authority housing department find her a new home. Um, In January, revised guidelines in the PREVENT program issued as part of the counterterrorism and security bill mandated that teachers, including nursery school workers and child care workers, quote, have training that gives them the knowledge and confidence to identify children at risk of being drawn into terrorism and challenge extremist ideas which can be used to legitimize terrorism. Um, This led to the incredible headline in the Telegraph, quote, anti-terror plan to spy on toddlers, quote, is (laughs) heavy-handed. Um, And so the final aspect of Islamophobia that I want to touch on 
um, are the public pronouncements by some journalists and politicians across the whole political spectrum that stigmatize Muslims as a group. And again, examples are too numerous to count, but the right wing, both the far right and the more centrist right, have seized on this climate because it serves a political purpose. As the Open Society Foundation notes, Europe is going through its worst economic recession since the 1930s. Minorities often serve as scapegoats in times of economic and political crisis. Islam and the approximately 20 million Muslims who live in the European Union are depicted by some as inherent threats to the European way of life, even in countries where they have lived for generations. The myth of an ongoing European Islamization or invasion has been nurtured by xenophobic populist parties that are on the rise against across Europe. And this includes both traditional far-right parties and new formations that have specifically arisen around this issue. So in France, the most well-known of the, of the traditional far-right party is the National Front, um, the anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic party of Jean-Marie and Marine Le Pen. Now, the elder Le Pen has, had been pushed out of the party by his daughter Marine after yet again making comments downplaying the Holocaust and the Vichy government, which Marine apparently decided that you know naked anti-Semitism is no longer maybe in the party's best interest. Instead, it's the Islamophobia that the party is now banking on. Um, typical was Gilles Parmentier, who recently ran for Vincennes Regional Council on the National Front ticket. He said, quote, not every Muslim is a terrorist, thank God, but every terrorist is a Muslim. The party's calls to shutter mosques and deport Muslims have led the party to actually a second place finish in the March elections. In Sweden, the anti-Islamist Sweden Democrats party has been getting about 15% support in recent public opinion polls. The party entered parliament in 2010, winning votes after they made a campaign video in which an elderly lady is overrun to get state benefits by a horde of burqa-clad women. In Germany, patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the West, um, or Pegida as it's known by its initials in German, went from organizing demonstrations of several hundred last year um, to a high of some 25,000 in the city of Dresden. As Mohamdali writes, the movement, although initiated by far-right hooligans, quickly attracted a mass of older middle-class protesters, fearful of losing their pensions and savings, yet content to march under the ethnically exclusive slogan, We Are the People. The group has now spawned offshoots, by the way, in several other countries. And according to one poll, one in eight Germans say they would join Pegida's anti-Islam marches if there was a group in their hometown. Now, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has denounced Pegida and said that the group's leaders have prejudice, coldness, even hatred in their hearts. But of course, Merkel wants to have it both ways. Like many slightly less right-wing po political leaders throughout Europe, Merkel is happy enough to scapegoat Muslims when she herself is trying to be the political beneficiary of that racism. So in 2010, as polls showed, 30% of Germans felt that the country was being, quote, overrun by foreigners. Merkel made a headline-grabbing speech in which she declared that, quote, the approach to build a multicultural society and to live side by side and to enjoy each other has failed, utterly failed. 
Of course, when politicians use rhetoric like this, unless there is a real concerted opposition, it moves the entire political discourse to the right, and it becomes very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, in the UK, the United Kingdom Independence Party has also taken a hardline anti-Muslim, anti-immigration, and anti-European position. And like Merkel, Prime Minister David Cameron, as I said earlier, has been parroting a slightly softer version of the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant line from the likes of the UK Independence Party. So in 2011, Cameron spoke to a security conference in Munich in which he attacked, quote, the doctrine of state multiculturalism, adding that Britain needs, quote, a lot less of the passive tolerance of recent years and much more active muscular liberalism. Now, hopefully everything that I've just laid out to this point will convince people why it is that Islamophobia actually functions as a form of racism. But I do want to say that I actually think it's important for the left to proclaim that. Um, because beyond all the policies marking Muslims out as officially others, um, you know, the, there's a debate over whether or not that, that you can call Islamophobia racism. Now, it's, it's the case that within Europe, the majority of those who practice Islam are also, by the way, marked as racially different from white European population populations, most often being of North African or Arab descent, and often having an ethnic background originating in a population that was once colonized by a European power, sharpening the prejudice that they face in, internally in those countries as a result. So in France, for example, more than 80% of French Muslims are of Algerian, Moroccan, or Tunisian descent, all countries with a history of French colonization. And the history of these colonial occupations, the legacy of the brutal suppression of native populations, and the stripping of these countries' resources inevitably shapes the treatment of Muslim immigrants um, and uh, Muslim immigrant second and third generation citizens inside Western European nations. As with anti-Semitism, Islamophobic rhetoric suggests that various cultural practices of devout or fu fundamentalist Muslims are a threat to the imagined national identity, as I said before. Um, and by the way, anti-Semitism does tend to rise at the same time as, as Islamophobia rises. Um, so Islam is both stereotyped as a religion that is uniquely irrational, violent, insular, oppressive of women, as I said, and cultural practices around things like daily prayers, fasting during Ramadan, um, the eating of halal meat, or the wearing of the hijab or the niqab are then used to accuse Muslims of isolating and self-segregating from society. All of this results in stereotyping, harassment, discrimination, and it's reproduced in structural and institutional ways, and socialists have a duty to oppose it. Um, as socialist Gilbert Ashkar has written, when the French state concerns itself with regulating the way in which young Muslim women dress themselves and exclude from school those who persist in wearing the Islamic scarf, when the latter are taken as targets of a media and political campaign whose scale is out of proportion with the extent of the phenomenon concerned and thus reveals its oppressive character, perceived as Islamophobic or racist, whatever the intentions expressed, when the same state favors the well-known expansion of religious communal education through increasing subsidies to private education, thus aggravating the divisions between the exploited layers of the French population, the duty of mar 
Marxists, in light of everything explained above, is to be resolutely opposed. Now take the question of laïcité in France and how that applies in particular to the French ban on the hijab in schools and on the full veil um, in public. In France, laïcité is the tradition of the separation of church and state that arose out of the French Revolution and the struggle to put a break on the power of the Catholic Church, and we would support that, certainly. However, that tradition today has been co-opted by the capitalist state, and the law now has become a kind of cudgel, a tool that is used to curtail religious expression, in particular as a further repressive apparatus against the most marginalized in society. So in December, for example, the mayor of Sargelet-le-Mon in the northwest of France declared that Muslim students would, get, would not um, get substitute meals for meals with pork anymore under the principle of republican neutrality. Obviously, the most visible aspect of the use of the law to discriminate is in the debate around the ban on the hijab and other, quote, ostentatious religious displays in schools um, that was passed in 2004, um, and also the ban on the full-faced veil in public that was passed in 2011. Now, on the one hand, you could argue, and many do, including on the left, that veiling is an indication of women's second-class status in Islam and that is antithetical to the values of the Republic and therefore these women must be liberated through the passage of these laws. But this presupposes not only that women's oppression with Islam is somehow totally divorced from the oppression that all women face under capitalism and that religions are unchanging, it also assumes that the French state is somehow acting in Muslim women's best interests. Those same women who are also the subject of institutional discrimination and racism that rains down on them every day as a result of the policies of the French government. And at its most basic level, these bans assume that Muslim women are little more than passive dolls, all quietly wearing the hijab or the niqab, not because of a conscious choice regarding their own religious beliefs, but because they're forced to. Under this theory, Muslim women who choose the veil are simply waiting for the state to come along to remove their hijabs and niqabs, after which they'll be free to be liberated French women, because French women aren't oppressed as well. Um, and for those who may not be happy with this idea, for those who continue to wear the full face veil, the state has a solution, a compulsory course on French citizenship. Um, though I couldn't actually find an example of, of a woman yet being forced to go through such a course. Now, these bans, under the guise of secularism, have escalated attacks on Muslim women. As the New York Times reported in May, statistics collected by the National Observatory Against Islamophobia, a watchdog group, show that in the last two years, 80% of anti-Muslim acts involving violence and assault were directed at women, most of them veiled. This includes, in some instances, mothers being prevented from attending school trips with their children, being prevented from walking on a beach, and being denied access to jobs. One woman, one pregnant mother um, who was wearing a headscarf in Toulouse had to be hospitalized after being beaten on the street by a young man who called her, quote, a dirty Muslim. Some segments of the left, particularly the center left, have been actually quite appalling, frankly, on this question, um, including the Socialist Party and SOS Racism, which is the sort of main liberal anti-racist organization in France and, and has connections to the Socialist Party. 
In March, Frédéric Calandre, the Socialist Party male of Paris's 20th arrondissement, banned the black Muslim journalist and anti-racist campaigner Rakaia Diallo from attending a meeting on violence against women. According to Calandra, Diallo could not be allowed to attend because although she herself did not wear a hijab, she has campaigned, quote, for the abolition of laws forbidding ostentatious religious signs from schools in public space. The act of covering women's heads with a veil indicating that they are by nature impure and temptresses for men. One will agree that Ms. Diallo's feminist commitment does not seem obvious, stated Calandra. In the end, however, the meeting was held anyway, away from the original space, and Diallo did attend, and here was her answer to Calandra. What we have here is a middle-class feminism, conservative and paternalistic, or rather, in this case, maternalistic. Be it on the headscarf or on prostitution, people are talking about things that they have never encountered. When I talk about women wearing headscarves, it's women that I have met. To me, they are women before being women who wear a headscarf. But yesterday's meeting proved something is changing, that there is an unstoppable movement of people who are not willing to listen to what the Socialist Party says about who is a good feminist. The point Diallo makes about the terms of the debate actually shifting um, and the state, Diallo makes a point as well about the, the terms of the debate shifting and the state and its junior political partners pushing toward ever more restrictions. And that's an important point. In fact, writing in the International Socialism Journal, Jim Wolfries points out that when, he, when the formal law of separation of church and state was implemented in France in 1905, the law did mark a rejection of Catholicism and church influence over the state and sought religious neutrality for the state and state actors. But it actually expanded religious freedom of expression for individuals. In fact, an amendment that would have prevented priests from wearing the cassock in public was tabled on the grounds, Wolfries says, that it was a provocation that infringed on, quote, freedom and human dignity, and that it amounted to a proselytizing garment rendering the priest a prisoner or a slave. The day after separation, declared Aristide Briand, the principal author of the law, the cassock becomes a garment like any other. And the National Assembly actually adopted a different resolution instead, which extended freedom of religious expression in public space. But today, rather than the state viewing religious garments as garments like any other, all garments are now suspected of containing the hidden seed of religious fundamentalism. A case in point, in April, uh, a 15-year-old teenage Muslim girl in northeastern France was sent home from school because she was wearing a long skirt uh, that the principal judged because of its length to be, quote, an ostentatious sign of her Muslim faith. And according to the Collective Against Islamophobia, there have been 130 similar incidents since January. Secularism, writes Wolfries, once meant, uh, uh, once a means of protecting religious expression has become a means of subjecting Muslims and Muslim women in particular to unprecedented scrutiny, anointing petty zealotry with the fake sheen of universalism. Across Europe, from both the right and certain sections of the center left, and even some of those on the far left, there is a particular argument that since Islam is a religion and not a race, and since Islamic terrorism and fanaticism is supposedly on the rise, then it is entirely appropriate to publicly ridicule um, or for the state to suppress Islam. 
And there is the accusation that the term Islamophobia itself is used by Muslims, in particular fundamentalist Muslims, as well as sections of the left, to immediately shut down any legitimate criticism of fundamentalist or reactionary political Islam. In the UK, left-wing writer Keenan Malik has argued in an uh, article titled The Islamophobia Myth that there is a fundamental difference between race and religion. You can't choose your skin color, you can choose your beliefs. Now we'll leave aside what Rachel Dolezal suggests about people sometimes choosing their skin color. Um, but in France, this debate has taken on specific contours on, on the broad left and the far left. Um, in the wake of the January Hebdo killings, Prime Minister Manuel Valls declared, I refuse to use this term Islamophobia because those who use this word are trying to invalidate any criticism at all of Islamist ideology. The charge of Islamophobia is used to silence people. Um, the left front has also opposed the use of the term saying it quashes legitimate criticisms of Islam. Uh, a more recent iteration of this argument comes in the form of a recently published book by Sharb, Stéphane Charbonnier, the deceased editorial director of Charlie Hebdo, who was killed in the January attack. The book is titled, and I'm going to guess that it rolls off the tongue a little bit better in French, um, <laughs> quote, an open letter to the fraudsters of Islamophobia who play into racists' hands. Um, in it, Sharb argues that there is a kind of paternalism on the left that attempts to shield Muslims from criticism of Islam, and that as a result, it results um, and it, it causes a kind of amplification of Muslim religious identity that further reinforces fundamentalism. Why should Islam, he argues, among all the religious identities, be safeguarded from ridicule and satire from the left? Um, he writes, saying Islam is not compatible with humor is as absurd as claiming Islam is not compatible with democracy or secularism. Now that would be true if indeed that was the only argument that those on the left who condemned Charlie Hebdo for publishing the caricatures of Muhammad were making. But that is largely not the argument. And I want to make it clear, while Charlie Hebdo was a magazine generally of the left that challenged the far right and the National Front in particular, I do think various cartoons were racist and attacked Muslims, not just the idea of Islam as a religion. And I think it's legitimate to have a debate about whether they were satire or racism, and I would say that they were racist. Um, at the same time, I would also defend the principle of free speech and Charlie Hebdo's right to publish them. Likewise, I don't think we need to be timid in our criticisms of the retrograde forces that carried out the January attacks. The cartoons themselves were a provocation, but this attack was carried out by fundamentalist forces who had, as part of their aim, the specific desire to further isolate and increase repressive attacks on France's Muslim population. And they have largely succeeded in that aim. Um, and their desire was to use it as a means of driving more people toward a reactionary version of Islam. I disagree with Sharp's view about the cartoons because at least in what I've read from his book, and I haven't read the whole book, I admit, um, I think in those quotes, he tries to divorce the idea of satirizing Islam from the larger context of the repression and racism that Muslims are currently facing from the French state. And I think socialists have a principal duty to stand against racist oppression, in particular when it dovetails with its attacks from the, from the state. Um, in that sense, I think satire of that kind, um, no matter what the intentions were, serves to bolster the right wing. However, I also do think there's a problem with the argument put forward by some on the left, and I include Hassan Mohamdali in this. Um, you know, he writes an otherwise excellent 
um, article in the International Socialism Journal, um, and he writes this, though. The political right has found in the Islamic specter a confirmation of some of its old prejudices toward Islam, the Third World, and Arabs. The left is in principle more inclined to accept the emergence of the other, yet it too has made a spectacular mistake. Although it is capable of recognizing Arabs, it loses its bearings and ability to be rational when dealing with Muslims. Its anti-clericalism fo focuses on the religious content of a phenomenon. Once the left has retreated behind its supercilious, should one say fundamentalist, attachment to the symbols of secularism, it becomes incapable of admitting that the universalism of Republican thought might be challenged in part or in whole, and that someone might one day dare to write a piece of history in a vocabulary that is not its own. Now, there are, to be fair, some on the left like that. Among them, the French Communist Party, um, which was uncritical of the way in which the mass outpouring of sentiment and calls for national unity were manipulated by the state to its own ends. Absolutely, we should be against simplistic prescriptives from the left. But I think Mahamdali here makes the mistake in suggesting that the entire French left somehow has failed Muslims following the Hebdo attack out of a blind religious-like adherence to laicite. He makes it seem that there is no distinction within the left on these questions. Um, yet there were responses on the left that were principled, that were clarifying, and which stood wholeheartedly with the oppressed while not avoiding an analysis of the killings and their impact. The main organization of the French revolutionary left, the new anti-capitalist party, spoke out clearly against the tide of bigotry that followed the January 7th killings and refused to march four days later behind Francois Hollande and all the other, quote, butchers of the world, as they called Merkel, Netanyahu, etc. Before the January attack, the NPA had criticized racist cartoons in Charlie Hebdo and talked specifically about the way those cartoons played into the hands of the capitalist state, quote, perpetuating the imbecilic class of, clash of civilizations idea. Along with the NPA, there were other forces like the Party of the Indigenous of the Republic um, and Lut Ouvrier, another French left party, which refused to attend the national unity demonstration called by the French government on January 11th and explained why it would be used to promote a further tide of reactionary attacks. In a piece we ran in Socialist Worker in January, Julian Selinge of the NPA argued that it was not sufficient for the left to simply say the killers are a product of French political policy, both domestic and foreign, and can be understood without justifying them as a consequence of these policies. So why insist on, on that it was not uh, sufficient to say only that? He continues, certainly not in order to judge the killers independently from the political, economic, and social context in which they evolved, thus excusing France and its policies. Rather, it's necessary to understand this in order to shine a light on the discourse and the political positions of the killers who, from their point of view, believe rationally that they are at war with a certain France and that they consider rationally themselves to be engaged in legitimate defense. Um, and this is the other way in which I disagree with Mahamdali. I think he does actually edge somewhat toward committing the error that someone like Sharb accuses the left of and that Selene describes here, namely withholding all criticism of reactionary political Islam out of what is indeed a positive desire, namely to stand in solidarity with the oppressed. 
Um, and in, in thinking about this, and I'm just going to start wrapping up, in, in thinking about this, I think the left can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can criticize the way that Muslims are treated as a result of the way laws are co-opted to state interests designed to single out Muslims. We can have an analysis of Islam as a religion which acknowledges that all religions are shaped by their social context and that Islam is no more inherently reactionary or oppressive than any other major religion. We can stand for the right of freedom of religion and the freedom to religious expression. And we can especially talk about the ways in which the capitalist state uses such actions to further attack and marginalize an oppressed population and to call for unrelenting, principled solidarity with that population. Yet, we can also stand for the right to freedom of speech from attacks by the state even when the form of that speech is something we, we consider repugnant, we can, we can recognize that reactionary forces carrying out an attack, as happened against Hebdo and Jewish customers in a deli, is both best understood through an analysis that grapples with the overall reality of the historical circumstances, grievances, and oppressions that Muslims in France face today, while also not hiding the fact that we believe that fundamentalist Islam, as practiced by these assailants, is reactionary and a dead end for the left, in part precisely because it also ascribes to the view that there is a clash of civilizations. Within this context, there are also all sorts of political judgments to be made about specifically how and in what context and when to make these arguments, but that doesn't absolve us of the difficult job in making them. Now, thank you to We Are Many for that. If you'd like more such, you can get them from wearemany.org. We have time for one more clip. This is Juval Aviv. I have not got the context, I'm afraid. There's a rotating Fox 5 logo in the bottom of the video from which I took this soundtrack. I believe it is authentic. Juval Aviv, whose subtitle explains he is a security expert, also a former Mossad operative, has this to say on the subject of truck bombs. It's easy to put a truck bomb as we did, as happened in London uh, and happens in Iraq or Israel on a, on a weekly basis. It's easy to put a truck bomb as we did, as happened in London. So was that just an innocent slip of the tongue from somebody speaking a foreign language? Well, while we're at it, let's hear Donald Rumsfeld. Imagine the kind of world we would face if the people who bombed the best hall in Mosul, or the people who did the bombing in Spain, or the people who attacked the United States in New York, shot down the plane over Pennsylvania and attacked the Pentagon, shot down the plane over Pennsylvania, shot down the plane over Pennsylvania. Catch me. This and all previous episodes of the show are available for download from MP3 archive, unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. I'm still looking for speakers. You could lend your voice to Alan Frankovich's film on Gladio. If you'd like to speak on the show, do email me, unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net. And a native English accent is not required. All you've got to do is to be a clear speaker of English. Our theme tune by Billy Bragg and Wilco and lyrics by Woody Guthrie. Now, the website tells me we've had over 2,000 visits to last episode. Very encouraging stuff, more than any new episode. 
So if you've been passing the address on to friends or posting it to forums, then my hearty appreciation. It's great to see these alternative ideas reaching a wider audience. Travelers, another brave.